Hey, welcome to the Knowles 24-7 podcast. I'm Brendan Sinone, and it's going to be a little bit of a different type of episode today. I don't have Bob Ferrante or Chris Snee joining me. Instead, I have a, a special guest host, uh, Ben Jones, a good friend of mine. I used to Some of you Florida State fans probably still remember him. He covered uh, Florida State for a few years over at War Chant, and uh, he's currently covering Alabama. What is this going to be for you, Ben? Year, year three? Going into year three here in Tuscaloosa, yes. So he's going into year three. It's been a pretty fun ride. He covers Alabama for the Tuscaloosa News and uh, Tidesports.com. And, uh, yeah, the last couple of years have been uh, you got to go to two national championship games, and Alabama's in a really good position uh, to to make another run and get into the college football playoffs. And, obviously, we have been on because Florida State and Alabama – play to uh to begin the 2017 campaign i don't know if you guys heard about that so <laughs> before we go too far into it ben from your time in tallahassee you're a uh, renowned donut connoisseur uh, best place to get a donut in or around tallahassee in or around tallahassee um i think it's uh it's was it donut king donut king or donut kingdom the one on uh tennessee, tennessee. yeah um uh, they have some really good stuff my favorite while i was there was the red velvet cake donut with cream cheese frosting. They also have occasionally, I don't know if it's an everyday thing, um, but they have a peanut butter and jelly donut, which is uh, like a jelly donut with peanut butter topping, which is pretty good. Yeah, I don't think I I have that one. Yeah, both of those have my approval. All right, the the red velvet one's pretty legit. So if you guys are uh, in town or – traveling to town for a game make a stop at, at donut kingdom they don't sponsor us for, for the record but maybe they <laughs> should uh, all right so ben a couple topics i want to discuss ahead of the the florida state alabama matchup which is what like three weeks away at this point and it's it's coming mm-hmm. up close uh one i want to go into some of the nuts and bolts of the of the game uh, i won't ask you for a score prediction because none of us really know Let's start off. What are your thoughts on kind of you've covered Florida State with Jimbo Fisher. You've covered Alabama with Nick Saban. Similarities, contrast between those two coaches. Obviously, Jimbo's part of uh, you know the Saban coaching tree and, and had a lot of success with him as an offensive coordinator at, at LSU in the 2000s. Uh, what do you see between those two guys that kind of resonates as, as a similarity? Um, and then again, what's different on how they kind of run things day to day. I think one of the, the biggest similarity between the two of them is, is probably that they share offensive and defensive philosophies. Um, I think that Nick Saban has been quoted previously saying that Jimbo Fisher was probably the best offensive coordinator that he ever had for the kind of system that he wanted to run. Um, I, you know, Nick Saban's system over the years has obviously kind of gone in a lot of different directions and evolved based on who's been the offensive coordinator. Um, but I think the most important thing that he really looks for is balance, and that was one thing that uh, he had at LSU when Jimbo Fisher was his offensive coordinator. Um, that's probably what Nick is trying to get back to a little bit more um, this year with Brian Dable as his offensive coordinator after three years of Lane Kiffin. You know, the, the running game last year was obviously really strong. They need to probably continue to develop the downfield passing game. Um, I think that'll be kind of one of the priorities for Alabama in fall camp this year. And and then defensively, you know, um, Jimbo Fisher's system since Mark Stoops left has really kind of been built on what Alabama did um, when he yeah. brought in Jeremy Pruitt um, as defensive coordinator from Alabama to install that system and won the national championship. Uh, and, I, and I believe they've more or less stayed with that system. Obviously, Charles Kelly has kind of brought some of his own flair to it. Um, but most of the principles are the same. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, uh, but I feel like maybe last year, and this is kind of a sore topic, they uh, they tried to force feed that that pattern matching stuff that, that Saban really implemented when he was in the NFL and, and kind of has perfected. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not really Kelly's forte. It was Pruitt's. That's what he was kind of brought up and, and learned how to do under Saban, and I think that's kind of been tough for uh, for Kelly because that's not his forte. But, yeah, they, they try to do it. It's just, you know, it's hard to replicate what Saban's done. Yeah, and, you know, one one important thing to, to remember when you're talking about Nick Saban in Alabama and, and some of the pattern-matching schemes on defense, Alabama still does that. That's still a big part of what they do. Um, I don't know if it's as big of a part of, of what they do as, as what it's made out to be. Um, mm-hmm. I think part of it is just because it's such a unique thing at the college level. You know, most programs don't have the talent 
um, or, or the coaching to implement something like that, that the, the programs who can do it, um, like Alabama or Florida State, kind of stand out. But Alabama also uses a lot of zone and a lot of man-to-man. Uh, it's not always just pattern matching um, in the secondary. There's just not enough time to, to teach the college kids the pattern match. It's so intricate, and and yeah. uh, that's a big reason why. But, yeah, Florida State was kind of the same thing last year on defense. They didn't ditch the pattern matching, but they went far more to the – a lot of man to man, and then they kind of started building it back up and, and had some success, but it, it took a while. Um, is there anything so when like you were here, you covered Florida State first before you got to Saban, and so maybe you weren't looking for those kind of things, you know, a few years ago when you were covering Jimbo. Uh, but would you see similarities in like demeanor or those guys? Like, is there any? I mean, I know that we hear the process, we hear clutter. I, I think there's similar catchphrases, but. Uh, Jimbo doesn't seem like he's a mini Saban, right? Like he's, he's taken a lot yeah. from Saban, but they're not the same guy at all. No, personality wise, they're they're definitely um, they're they're definitely their own men. The the one thing that I always point out about Nick Saban when when people ask him about what's different about him um, or what makes him so successful, obviously the guy is, is a brilliant football mind um, and has really strong organizational skills, really strong leadership skills, and can communicate with with players and, and coaches. All those things that I think most division one football coaches have. I think you just don't get to that level of coaching if you don't have those skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed about Nick that probably stands out among other coaches that I've covered is how efficient everything is run. Um, I can give you a quick example of it here where on, on, on Saturday we had the football media day, um, which is the one time a year when Alabama's offensive and defense coordinators are available to talk to the media. Hey, that's two. <laughs> Yeah, there's about uh, yeah, there's one similarity between the coaches, I guess. <laughs> um, there's about a 15 minute press conference with Nick Saban, and then uh, the offensive coordinator came in for about 15 minutes. The defensive coordinator came in for about 15 minutes. Then we left the football building, went over to the stadium to do player interviews. Um, you know, media walked out on the field as soon as we were all there, and it had all gotten over from the football building. The players who were going to do interviews walked out. Uh, it was about 20 minutes right on the nose. As soon as players were done with their interviews, they walked up into the stands uh, of Brian Denny stadium where the team was going to take its picture. Um, the rest of the team was already lined up, including all of the coaches. Uh, and so those 15 or 20 players just walked right to where they were going to stand and, and take their picture. And they got the team picture done just like that. So in, in the span of about an hour and a half, you managed to get a head coach press conference, an offensive coordinator press conference, defensive coordinator press conference, um, player interviews and the team picture and the coaching staff picture all done at once. It was just, you know, I, I've seen that done at Kentucky that I covered before um, and seen it at Florida State. And at, at those programs, that's almost like a half a day or a whole day ordeal. You know, some of that is just because they give you a little bit more time for interviews. But at Alabama, everything really kind of ran to a minute. There wasn't any downtime in between any of it. It was all orchestrated. It all ran exactly the same as it had the year before and the year before that when I'd done it. Um, it was really clear that they were not going to waste any time. I'm sure that as soon as the team picture was done, everybody got back on the bus and went back over to the football facility and watched tape for two hours. And then they went out and did practice. And I'm, that's just how probably how they fit it all in. It was just a normal day with, you know, a couple hours of stuff that they had planned in the morning. If, if I could provide a contrast to that, because FSU's media day was Sunday. Uh, in this First was by far the most organized. It's been, and this is my fifth one, and I thought this one worked pretty well. Uh, but it's always, and you may remember this from when from when you were here, when FSU takes the team picture, it's never smooth. Uh, they do that. That's the first thing they do before, at least the last couple of years, that's the first thing they've done before breaking out Jimbo or uh, any of the assistants or, or players. And every year, man, Jimbo just gets so pissed off when he's taking the picture <laughs> usually he doesn't want to be there and it is it's, it's crazy thing and i know it's from like when i played in high school and we had to take pictures every single year it's impossible to get a bunch of five t- teenagers uh, all lined up at the it, right exactly place. exactly and it's nine o'clock in the morning then too so then none of them are like really are awake fully and yeah and it's starting to get hot in the stadium but um, and that ends up setting the setting the rest of the the media schedule, which is supposed to be really tight. Like it's an like hour and a half or so to get all the you know, same kind of guys that you said, um, and that just always sends it back. Like they say, they're it's going to be ten minutes, and it never is. It's usually like thirty. <laughs> so, um, 
But that's, you know, when we're talking about similarities between Jimbo and, and Saban, and I think that is going to be a storyline that, that gets focused. I mean, I'm reporting stuff on it. I know a lot of people are. Uh, similarities or contrast. I, I think when you look at Jimbo, what he's done uh, at Florida State, and that includes winning a championship in the 2013 season, he's followed a blueprint that Nick Saban laid out in terms of infrastructure and support staff and, and just how important it is to to – I mean, pour a ton of money in, into college football, you know, using uh, Trevor Moad, the uh, the mental conditioning expert. Like, I'm pretty sure that was mm-hmm. a Saban joint that yep. that Trevor's at FSU a lot now. So much of – And also, of, a lot of the key factors that you see both programs use in recruiting, you know, one of the things that it's been reported that Alabama does is it kind of has a framework for a, a player at every position, um, you know, a, a size, a height, and weight, mm-hmm. and they also measure hand size and arm length and – 40 times they, they kind of have a mock-up of a player in mind at every position that they want before they take them. That's not to say that every player fits that perfectly, but you know, if, for example, if, if their prototypical receiver needs to be between six foot and six, four and run at least a four or five or something, then if there's a guy that Alabama is recruiting, who's five ten and is you know two inches shorter than that, um, then he can do something else really exceptionally well. There's a reason why they're going after him. And you, and you see a lot of the same stuff at Florida State, which is one reason why you see him go head-to-head so much in recruiting because they run you know, similar offenses and similar defenses, and they value a lot of the same traits out of high school recruits. And they're the same you know, footprint. Excuse me, footprint for recruiting for the most part too. The campuses yeah, are about what, five hours from each other. Like, like Alabama's recruiting ter- territory is probably a lot more similar to to what Florida State has, and say like even even you know people think that Miami kind of constitutes as as Florida and Florida State are kind of the same in, in how they recruit, but very different scopes for those two programs, Florida State and Miami, say versus. Alabama and Florida State are a lot more similar. Um, mm-hmm. And and one other thing about – you mentioned the prototypes. Like, yeah, that's for sure, you know, Florida State has that. Uh, Levante Taylor on this current roster's example was a five-star recruit. Didn't fit that prototypical length and the, the arm length uh, and then just the general size that Florida State looks for in defensive backs. But he's a fantastic athlete, had great workout numbers and a ton of production in, in high school in a really good area in the Virginia Beach area. Uh, and Florida State took a gamble on it. Or not even a gamble, but just kind of broke the mold because he's so good. It's not a gamble. He was uh, one of the top ten recruits in the country, but but yeah. kind of went away from it. Uh, it. One other thing, too, I've been thinking about with Jimbo and, and Saban. How often does Saban reference New England Patriots or uh, what, what Bill Belichick does? Because that's clearly a blueprint that Jimbo also looks at uh, when, when he's trying to kind of devise things for how he wants to, to run to run his, his program, both schematically and then just infrastructure. Yeah, um, he probably doesn't talk about it as much as you would expect, um, although I don't know that that's necessarily because he doesn't value it. I think it's just kind of goes back to his personality. The other thing that I always tell people about, um, you know, their organization and how efficient they are is just how, you know, incredibly hyper-focused Nick Saban is. Um, kind of on the six inches in front of his face. If if you were to ask him a question uh, this week at practice about the 2014 season with Blake Sims at quarterback and something they did with the offense then, if they might do that again this year, um, he, he would almost like you know not to not to fall back on the the cliche, but like a robot that like malfunctioned, like it wouldn't compute. He, it would. He's not thinking about the 2014 season right now. He's just so super focused on the 2017 team um, and particularly Florida state that he wouldn't be able to go back and, and pull something out of his brain from 2014 um, kind of just out of a hat like that. Um, uh, so, you know, every once in a while you'll hear, you'll get a question about Bill Belichick um, and the Patriots and, you know, their time with the Browns together. Um, and you might end up getting a pretty good answer about that. Certainly it's, it's been an influence on them. You know, he and Bill are still close. He just hired, one of Bill's assistants to be mm-hmm. his offense coordinator this year. Um, but he's, he's not a guy like Jimbo who can go back and tell you what play they ran on third and six against Georgia in the 1993 season um, when he was offensive coordinator. That, that That's one difference between the two of them where, you know, Jimbo is much more likely to go back and, and reference history, whether it's his own or someone else's. Um, whereas Nick is, is much more focused uh, on kind of what's right in front of him and doesn't look 
forward or back really at all. Yeah, Jimbo, for you, you know, for you maybe they don't, you know, go and watch the the weekly uh, press conference or something like that. During the season, he will often deviate and go into some just crazy reference of basketball in the 1980s or just an old game when he was at LSU or Auburn and be able to just rattle off these uh, these statistics from the game that are, if not directly you know, accurate, at least fairly close. Um, he has almost like a photographic memory when he comes, especially for sports. I've often thought like Jimbo has a brain just so well-equipped for football, and, and he's gotten better in that CEO capacity in recent years. I feel like Saban uh, is like a CEO running a football program. Jimbo's more of a, a football guy uh, organic in that kind of organic way. Uh, yeah, but, I think you and I one time at – at ACC kickoff, maybe heard Jimbo live on a radio show recite the last 25 college football national champions in order and the last 25 Heisman Trophy winners in order. Do you remember that? No, I don't. I, I, I don't. It was on live radio. Like the guy just asked him and like he just went with it. I mean, like it's incredible. I, I don't know of anyone else who could do that. Like it was like some Ken Jennings Jeopardy level shit. <laughs> and he did it quickly too. If he's Jimbo, yeah. because he just fires off like a like a Tommy gun. Um, what? First off, uh, you guys can't see me. I apologize, but I'm not being, I'm not trying to be rude. We're we're doing this over Skype, um, and, and so the microphones. Uh, for whatever reason, when I record it on Skype through the the recording technology that I have, which I'm terrible at, it picks everything up a lot a lot more. It's very sensitive. So uh, I'm trying not to breathe into the microphone, which I have like a couple feet away from me, but it like picks up when I'm breathing. So when Ben's talking, I'm I'm looking away with like my hand over my mouth so so i'm not trying to be be rude ben i'm listening i just don't want people to get ambient because <sighs> <laughs> uh, i'm getting a little so bit bigger as i get older so yeah i feel like i'm starting to become like like, like a heavy breathing overweight guy a little bit it's happening slowly <laughs> but but surely uh, marriage is a year away and then kids and pretty soon i'm just gonna be fat and angry uh Media policy. You've you've covered both Florida State and Alabama. Uh, I don't know anyone else who you know currently has covered both Jimbo and Saban. Any differences there between like the access you had at Florida State? And I'll tell you, it's not a whole not a whole lot different now than when you were here uh, compared to to Alabama. Um, not particularly. Um, I think that Florida State. And Jimbo might have been a little bit willing to go a little bit further down the depth chart. Um, if you had a reason to request a player, you know, um, if you were the only guy that wanted to talk to a player in, in that week, or um, then they might be willing to pull him out of the locker room for five or six minutes to give him to you. Um, I think I remember one year when I was there, I wrote a quick story about uh, one of Florida State's defensive tackles who was a high school teammate with Georgia Tech's quarterback in a year that they played. Justin Shanks. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, with Florida Justin State Thomas, fans love Justin Shanks. Yeah. Um, whereas Alabama would probably not be willing to to go with a request like that. Um, they, you know, the, the the policies that are similar are, you know, true freshmen and redshirt freshmen um, don't come in and talk. You know, injured players, even if they just had a sprained ankle and didn't finish the last game, don't usually come in and talk. Um, Nick also seems to have a list of guys that he's willing to put out there in front of the media and some guys that he's just not, even if they would normally fall in those categories. For example, Tim Williams was one of Alabama's best pass rushers each of the last two years, um, was a third round pick of the Ravens, I think this last year. Um, and we never spoke with him here in Tuscaloosa. We, we got to talk to him at the bowl game when, when the rest of the team was available um, but he was just never a guy that they allowed to come out and talk to us um, for some kind of nebulous reason that, you know, the, the kind of the blanket explanation is, you, you know, you have to kind of earn Saban's trust before you can go out and do that. And in some cases, you know, there are guys who are true sophomores um, who will come out and talk. Um, Alabama's left tackle, Jonah Williams, um, was talking in spring a little bit to us Um you know, still technically a, a freshman then, but he was an early enrollee he, who'd been on campus for a year at that point. Um, but there are also, like I said, fourth and fifth year seniors um, that we know will will never come up and talk with us just because they're not on whatever list for whatever reason. And no assistance uh, as well, aside from media day and then bowl games, right? Correct. 
Okay. Yeah, although you guys do actually get assistant coaches on media day, right? We just get the coordinators. Oh, yeah, yeah. We got the, actually, we got all of them this year. Like I said, it was probably the, the smoothest and most accessible media day we've had in a couple of years for sure. So, yeah, at least we got like to hear Rick Trickett and Brad Lawn and their thoughts. Yep. Well, you, you get to hear Rick Trickett a lot when you cover <laughs> him. Just not usually a media availability. <laughs> Yeah, anyone kind of who walks by the practice field can hear some very guttural and West Virginia twang <laughs> F-bombs and G-diots and everyone wants to put in the work, but no one wants the bullshit, god damn it. Or <laughs> uh, practice starts and 20 minutes after it ends. Uh, I didn't say that. Um, Trick, it's a, <laughs> a gem, though. He's he. They're just doing their walkthroughs with pads on. <laughs> yeah, just doing their walkthroughs with pads on. <laughs> All right, let's transition here to uh, to now getting into the game a little bit here on September second um, in Atlanta. Where from from you and and the guys on 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 staff with you covering Alabama? I'm sure it's been a storyline like the the championship game hangover. Uh, we saw that even like through this past season with Clemson, and they got to the championship game and you know they won it. But the year before in, in the 2015 uh, campaign, like they. You know, they got to the championship game, lost to Heartbreaker, and then you know kind of had some some hangover issues a little bit throughout this past season, and were talented enough to get past it. Uh, but how you know, how is this Alabama team losing to Heartbreaker last last play of the game? How is it doing? Uh, focused? Is it angry? I mean, I, where is it at right now at this point in the off season? Um, it's definitely something that is on their mind. Um, we talked about the microphone being really sensitive. You guys might hear my dog whining. I haven't been giving him nearly as much attention as he likes. Um, ben has a Rico and my dog is Rio and he's actually in my room too, but yeah, uh, much more somber and upset that he's locked in the room with me right now. He really wants to get out of here, which if I were him, I'd want to be away from me too. Anyways, yeah. Alabama football. Yeah. Uh, national championship game. Uh, you know, one of the things that Nick said at uh, SEC media days, which is, you know, almost a month ago at this point, but he said, we don't want to waste that loss, uh, which I thought was an interesting way to put mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, I, I think m- at most football programs, a loss generally wouldn't be considered a resource or something that you can put to use like that. But I think at Alabama where they kind of come so rarely, um, that's kind of how you have to look at it. They, they were obviously still really close. You know, it, it took um, an all time great comeback by Clemson and, you know, a fantastic quarterback and a fantastic game to beat Alabama with one second to go on the clock. Um, but, you know, it's it's also very clear that every year the goal for Alabama is a national championship. And when they miss that, um, you know, he wants to be able to remind players, you know, what it feels like. I think before that game, it had been something like 28 straight games that Alabama had won. You know, there's a, a healthy portion of that roster that essentially didn't really know what it what it felt like to lose a, a game or, you know, at least not to lose a really meaningful game. Um, the Ole Miss loss in 2015 would have been the other loss that some of those guys would have experienced. Um, you know, this is a program that operates kind of at, at such a high level that when it slips even just once or even just a little bit, um, you know, it, it leads people to question what they're doing and it, you know, it, it kind of forces them to reevaluate things just because one loss um, can prevent them from their goal. And I think that's kind of how they've looked at it, that this is an off season where they, they need to look at what they're doing. Um, if it's, if they had everything in place that they needed to, to win a national championship last year. Um, and if they have everything going forward that they need to this year, because that's, you know, again, the goal, uh, I think that's Florida state's goal as well. And that's, that's gotta be one of the things that makes this season opener so compelling. You hear that Florida state fans, you're going to pissed off Alabama coming in the season. Opener. <laughs> uh, so, one of the main topics and, and storylines I think that people kept asking players, and rightfully so, uh, at media day was kind of Alabama prep and how Florida State's taking in what's being dubbed the the biggest you know season opener of of all time, and it probably has a legitimate you know that, that title's not too too much uh, hyperbole there. Uh, it, what's been interesting, at least from my perspective, Ben, when I when I hear the answers from the Florida State players, is like they're they've 
they're not intimidated. At least they don't sound, and it's easy to say that now, you know, three weeks. They don't sound intimidated or in awe at all about Alabama. And I think Jimbo Fisher's done a really impressive job with kind of hammered in that, like, you're going to have to be prepared. This can probably be the biggest, you know, test that you'll face all season and you've faced in a while. Uh, but they're human. Like, I think that's kind of been something that, that these players have kind of understood. Landon Dickerson was asked about uh, Alabama's defensive line, and he said, well, truthfully, like, I feel like we go against a defensive line that's you know, probably better. And, again, like, semantics, like, both are going to be really, really good this year and probably top ten. Uh, but there's this level of confidence. You know, Jock West Patrick was asked about Alabama and knocking him off the king of the hill, and, and Patrick goes, what? What hill? So they've, uh, you know, they've exuded a lot of confidence and, and try to kind of downplay it. I guess my question for you is, is what is Alabama's approach to playing Florida State? Um, and, and just for a little history, like Alabama guys typically does fantastic opening up seasons. They are prepared, they come out, and, and they annihilate people. So I guess what, what perspective and what kind of context can you put the Florida State opener uh, into and how Alabama's kind of, kind of looking at it right now? Yeah, one thing I don't know if it's been discussed uh, a lot. I don't think either Nick Saban nor Jimbo Fisher has ever lost an opener at Alabama or Florida State. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I need to go and double-check Nick, but I'm pretty sure that Jimbo never lost an opener. Um, I'm trying to think. I could try to pull that up now while we're here. He hasn't since I've been there in 2013. But uh, Yeah. Um, you know, for, for Alabama – Obviously, this game is not business as usual, even as as you talk about high-profile openers. Um, but this has kind of become Alabama's MO to open up against a highly-ranked team in a neutral site NFL stadium. Um, th- this one, like you said, is, is a little bit – has more juice to it um, because of Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher because they're both going to be ranked in the top five, mm-hmm. um, you know because the ACC and the ICC probably have a little bit of a rivalry going at this point. Um, but, you know, this is what Alabama's done. They played USC, they played Michigan, they played Clemson, they played Virginia Tech, um, you know, kind of Wisconsin was in there, um, on and on. So, some of those programs ended up being really good that year. Some of them ended up not being that good. But, but Alabama really likes to open up with these kind of games. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you're right and that, you know, Florida State – has has reason to be confident going into this game um you know they've they've had success in openers they've had success against the sec teams they played against old miss and florida um you know looking at it on paper um there's there's good reason i think for both teams to expect to win this game um and for this to really kind of be the start of something special for them and you know if we're being honest this might not be the only time that these two teams meet i think it's you know it's not a conference game for either team it's entirely possible that the loser of this game could end up winning their conference and end up making the college football playoff. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think that's out of their own possibility at all. Like Florida State conceivably like could lose two games with the schedule that it has with Alabama, with Florida, you got at Clemson, Louisville. Um, like it still lose two games and, and maybe like we, we, I was thinking about it the other day and still like there's a there's a path. It's not a clear path, but there's a, a Yeah, path. you need some help. I think I think any team that loses two games needs some help to get in, probably. Yeah. Like what Florida State would have to play in uh in the ACC title game to get an extra game, I think, at that point. Like yeah. it would have to if it lost to Alabama, it the you know, it would have to somehow find its way as the as a division champion. But yeah, uh, Jimbo kinda talked about it. I think it was it was before ACC kickoff, but he was trying to put the game into perspective. I forgot what show it was on. I wish I could remember how to attribute it correctly, but he basically said like this one game doesn't define our season, and like the message board, like over at you know our unconquered message board, like a lot of people weren't happy with that, and I you know, think it's like loser talk, and it's it's not. That's the legitimate truth. And for FSU, like last year, they got blown out by Louisville early in the year, and that loss stuck with them for for weeks, and it eventually led to a another loss uh, with a defense not having any confidence guys jogging against North Carolina and a, and a heartbreaking loss that pretty much just ended any chance of competing yeah. for a, for anything significant, although they got their way back to the orange bowl, but still, um, and I think it's the same thing for Alabama too, right? Like this, this game doesn't define Alabama season. I don't, I don't think it defines the season, but I think, you know, for both programs um, you're going to find out, real quick whether they are what you expect them to be you mm-hmm. know i mean if um if this ends up being a game like 
Alabama against USC last year, which I think, you know, ended up being 52 to seven, um, then, you know, you'll know pretty quickly that Florida state is probably not a national championship contender. You know, Mm -hmm. if you end up seeing, um, Deandre Francois go out there and hang 400 yards on Alabama's secondary. Um, then I think that's a pretty clear indication that the secondary for the defense might not be, um, quite what it was after losing seven NFL draft picks last year. Um, you know, on the other hand, if it ends up being a 32 to 28 game or, you know, 28 to 26 or something like that, um, then yeah, I don't think that win or lose, it would, it would define them. Uh, is this fair? Is that I've been trying to think like how to put the game into perspective. Um, and I think those are good points that it's almost like this is like a measuring stick game for both programs. Whoever wins it has pretty much a clear path to the, to the playoff. You can probably lose at least one game um, safely and, and still with what you get from that, that win uh, enough cachet to say where you're starting in the season, getting a, a huge win like that early on that puts you in a good spot where you have a little bit of room. Uh, for the team that loses it, like, yeah, it puts you behind the eight ball. Like, you probably can't lose again. Maybe there's a scenario, like I said, in which you could could somehow manage to, to sneak your way in. But it's like your season doesn't even really begin until after that. Because say you do lose that opening game, if you do win out, uh, you have probably a good shot to to make it into the playoff, depending on what else happens. So I don't think it, I guess it defines the season. Maybe I didn't articulate that well. I think what it does, like you said, Ben, is it kind of is a measuring stick. It, it basically shows where your program's at, and the winner does have a pretty clear path. The loser probably has to figure some things out. Yeah, yeah, I, I think this will be an illuminating game for both teams. That that might be the word that I would choose to use. Even it could illuminate some things. I like it. That's why they pay you the the, the big bucks, and that's <laughs> uh, so. Let's kind of transition into the the nuts and bolts of the game a little bit. I, I haven't done like a ton of Alabama prep. I've definitely like watched some games, and and I've definitely uh, you know, read material about Alabama. Have a good idea of what they are, but um, I'm glad that we're doing this podcast now because I think this is kind of at least kind of gets my mindset to go more in depth with it as we're a few weeks out. So I, I'm not going to put you in a position, Ben, where I'm asking you to break down like second team uh, offensive line for for Florida State. Uh, but so for Alabama this year, with maybe share with our audience what you, at least you think the perceived strengths are of this team, like what the calling card is going to be. And then we get into weaknesses, but what do you think? Like if, if you, from what you know right now, what they have coming back, what you've seen so far in practice, like what's going to be the calling card for this Alabama team? Uh, I, I would say that it has the chance to be really explosive um, on the, on the ground in particular, uh, you know, Damian Harris, I think only had two rushing touchdowns last year, but had over a thousand yards and averaged over seven yards a carry for Alabama last season um Bo Scarborough uh I think had over 900 yards and about half of that came in the last four games of the season um when he he really went nuts Bo Scarborough is is a guy who's from Tuscaloosa um but just happens to be a a freak athlete he's about 6'2 230 not quite as big as Derrick Henry who is maybe 6'3 240 um but if you're thinking Derrick Henry or Jocka's Patrick size um, that's about what you're talking about when you're talking about Bo Scarborough. Um, and then Jalen Hurts last year also ran for, I think, 900 or 1,000 yards, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, it's it's possible that all three of those guys could replicate that kind of production again this year. Um, and then behind them, probably the, the next most likely guys to contribute, you have Najee Harris, um, who a lot of recruiting analysts had ranked above Cam Akers, mm-hmm. and I know state fans are really excited about um i think Najee is going to find his way on the field this year i don't know if he's going to be alabama's primary back or you know one of its two primary backs um just because the guys in front of them are both really talented and really experienced um but i think that uh Najee harris will end up having a role um particularly in the one open practice that we've gotten to see he looked like a, a real mismatch um coming out of the backfield in the passing game or, or being moved around um before the snap um, into the slot, doing some things like that. Uh, Josh Jacobs is a little bit smaller than some of those other running backs that we talked about. I think he's maybe 5'10", 210 or something, um, but is really shifty and ran for four or 500 yards last year as a true freshman. Um, I know a lot of Alabama fans were excited about what they saw from him. Um, you know, the, the running game for Alabama is just going to be really deep. Um, there's questions on the offensive line, particularly at right guard and right tackle, 
Um, but there, there's plenty of really talented guys there. It's just a matter of whether they can find the right pieces and fit them in uh, and have enough time for those guys to gel, particularly, you know, with, with the first game of the season. You know, this isn't – it's not like you have time to figure things out before things get really tough um, for Alabama. Um, you know, Calvin Ridley coming back at wide receiver wasn't as productive last year with Jalen Hurts at quarterback as he was with Jake Coker in his first year. But Ridley is still probably – I think it would be you'd be very safe in calling him one of the nation's ten best receivers, and, and maybe even higher than that. Um, you know, they have to replace Ardarius Stewart, a second round draft pick mm-hmm. at wide receiver, and OJ Howard, a first round tight end. Um, but you know, the way Alabama recruits, they're they're really talented options um, to fill in for for any of those guys. It's just a matter of if you can if you can replicate the production with the talent that you have offensively. And. Yeah, the run game is going to be. It seems like the bread and butter for for Alabama, and that'll be interesting to me because, like Florida State, the perceived strength of, of Florida State, I think it's its defensive front. Uh, I think it's got one of the best defensive tackle duos, and just the depth there in the country of Derek Nottie and Demarcus Christmas, who looked great at the open practice the other day, and it's kind of. Uh, you're waiting for him to break out to go from good to to special, and Derek Nadi kind of kind of got to that point late last season once his uh, his ankle was was 100. And then just you have Josh Sweat, Brian Bird's on the edge, so be interesting to see kind of see a strength against strength there. Uh, you mentioned Jalen Hurts uh, and his running ability, Ben. A lot of a lot of talk about him in this offseason has been, I guess. What is he doing? You know, to improve as a passer, and I've seen different articles and stuff saying he's really worked on that. And I'm always kind of interested to see like how much someone can really improve as a passer in in one season. But I know for Florida State fans, like the snapshot they have him in half of excuse me half of him is is Jalen kind of struggling to push the ball downfield against Clemson and kind of wearing down there a little bit, and that really proved to be pretty pretty damning. Um, one is is. His game, you know, as predicated on the legs as we, yeah, as that, as the Clemson game kind of showed, like if he can't can't get it going on the legs, is he able to get it through the air more consistently? And two, I guess, what have you seen from him in, in early portions, either in the open practice or pack practice you do have available to see? Um, how's, it, how's his arm look? Uh, and the one open practice that we saw, I wasn't particularly impressed with his passing. It's not like he had a, he had a terrible day or anything. Um, but just wasn't something that really wowed me necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Nick has said during the off season that they were probably too cautious with Jalen at times and they didn't do enough to bring him along as a passer, as a true freshman. They, they kind of tried to protect him uh, a little bit instead of developing him as much as they should have, um, you know, for, for kind of what lay ahead for them. Mm-hmm. And he said that that was kind of on him and the coaching staff and that was their fault. There were still a lot of things, that they were asking him to do late in the year that they were not asking him to do early in the year. If you watch particularly, you know, Alabama's first two or three games feels like almost every passing play, you know, he's, he's in the shotgun and then he takes a snap and rolls one direction and reads only one half of the field. You know, mm-hmm. he might only be looking at one receiver and then he just pulls the ball down and runs with it. If there's nobody there. Uh, and by the Clemson game, you did see him standing in the pocket a little bit more and going to his reads. Um, so I, th- I think that's at least one explanation or if you go and you look at Jalen's numbers throughout the year, um, it, it's true. His passing numbers did not improve significantly throughout the season. Um, but they, they were still asking him to do a little bit more. You know, if his completion percentage at the end was his completion percentage at the beginning of the year. Um, but they were asking him to, you know, take a little bit more time and putting more responsibility on him. Um, then that's still a form of progress, even if it doesn't, necessarily show up or even if it's not a big step forward for him um you know they've been kind of tight-lipped about exactly where the offense will go this year um we just got to talk with brian dable a new offensive coordinator on saturday for the first time uh and and he seemed he was really personal um really great to get to meet him and you know he was willing to talk about himself and was talking about the different the comparisons of working for Nick Saban and Bill Belichick and talked a little bit about his upbringing and how he got into coaching. But then anytime you got to a football question, you kind of just said, we'll see, mm-hmm. um, you know, anything that was scheme related at all, or, you know, might hint towards what they were doing. He, he didn't want to get into it at all. Didn't really want to tip his hand. Um, a guy who I, works for uh, Nick Saban and used to work for Bill Belichick is uh, tight lipped with uh, football information, huh? Shocking. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, if we're, if we're being honest, Jeremy Pruitt, the defensive coordinator, was kind of the same thing. Anytime yeah. you ask a question about football, he just said, well, we've only had two days of practice. We'll have to see how that shakes out. And just kind of be like, well, why did you schedule media day after two days of practice and you weren't going to answer any questions then? Like, they're not, they're not here the to help us, this? Ben. <laughs> like, let's wait a week and do this when you might actually have an idea of what's going on. Really. It was, it was Jeremy, when he was here for the one year he was in Tallahassee, he's not um, super uncomfortable at least talking to the media. That wasn't his forte. I'm not sure. It doesn't sound like it got a whole lot better, but he, he would – like pain, painful. Like his face was painful. Like as he tried to talk about media, he looked like 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 a vampire, like a like from Twilight or something, trying to trying to stand out to the light a little bit and just just wincing. You're the one that would make Twilight reference. I'm actually in the middle of uh, watching True Blood right now. I borrowed uh, Wayne McGahey of the Talos, a Democrat, was nice enough to let me get his HBO account the other day. Watch, yeah, but there, uh, there's miles between True Blood and, and Twilight. Come on, man. Well, like, most of there's there's like nudity in, in True Blood, which is pretty awesome. So Twilight was written for teenage girls. Come on. I don't think the first Twilight was that bad, but they kind of lost me after, <laughs> after that. To be honest, um, so you, you didn't mention it, it's it. I could, for the people who listen to the podcast, you know I can't pronounce names. So da- dabble, dable, dable is what he told us. Dable. Dable like table. Doesn't look like that. It's like D A B O L E, but okay. Dable. Alright. So so he comes from New England. Uh obviously I think sometimes in media we like to peg stuff into and I'm guilty of this, like is, is it like spread, is it pro style? Um but but one thing with Lane Kiffin last year, like he did a lot of stuff where he utilized it looked like Jalen Hurts mobility, and you kind of alluded to that, Ben. Um and I know I know Dable's not gonna be a uh it doesn't sound like you got a whole lot from him. Do you have kind of any idea of, of like he was brought in there to implement stuff they were doing in New England? Is he just going to kind of tr- keep going with what uh, Kiffin set uh, for him him to kind of build off of? Do you at least have any kind of grasp or prediction of, of what what Alabama's offense can be predicated on this year? Yeah, I don't think it'll be a total departure from what they've done in the last couple of seasons. Um, partially just because you know the offense was so good in the last couple of years. You know, whatever you want to say about Lane Kiffin um, and and how that ended, or you know, um, Lane in three seasons here got helped Alabama get to three college football playoffs, two national championship games, one national championship, three SEC championships, coached three different SEC offensive players of the year in three years, um, had three different starting quarterbacks in three years and broke the Alabama single season record for passing, rushing and receiving um, all in, in different years. Um, the offense the last few years has, has been really good. And I don't think they're going to abandon it wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that I think you might end up seeing a lot of um, with, with Brian Dable um, might be a little bit more uh, two tight end stuff, which um, would be a little bit more similar to what Alabama had done previously. I don't know if when we say two tight ends, if that means that they're going to line up, you know, one as a fullback, um, like what Alabama used to do probably in 2009 or 2010. Um, but, you know, if you have one guy who's, who's on the line of scrimmage there, you know, kind of with the offensive line and another guy who can move around into the backfield or out into the slot, um, I think that they – Alabama has the talent to do that. They've kind of been stockpiling tight ends over the last years. And we know that the tight ends were, were pretty excited to hear that um, Brian Dable was coming. He, he was actually the tight ends coach for the Patriots last year. He was, he was not the offensive coordinator with the Patriots. I think that's, that's right. still Josh McDaniels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Dable was the tight ends coach and you know, worked with a guy named Rob Gronkowski. <laughs> so good reason for Alabama's tight ends to be pretty excited about the possibility of what's coming. Um, you know, one thing that, that somebody brought up at media day, which I thought was interesting. They said that, you know, the Patriots were kind of known for using a lot of wide receivers underneath on some rub routes. Um, and could we see something like that? Um, and he immediately just kind of said, Oh, well, you know, we'll see. And then went on to the other part of the question. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all either. Uh, you know, someone has suggested to me since I, I don't watch a ton of NFL anymore, you know, we're usually busy with other stuff on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been suggested to me that, you know, the Patriots, are pretty good about using running backs as pass catchers. And you might see more of that for Alabama this year than what you have in previous years. Um, I'd say all of those are possibilities. Um, the biggest thing that I think you'll want to that Alabama wants to do with its offense is to really be able to control games a little bit more. Um, I don't think that they want to lose the ability 
to get into a shotgun and, and go quick and go up tempo. Um, but they want to be able to have that mentality where if, if they're going to run the ball nine straight times, then they're going to convert it, you know, for four first downs and they're going to take time off the clock and they're going to beat your defense up and they're going to make your offense feel like crap on the sideline watching it all happen. Mm -hmm. Um, They really want to bring that mentality back, I think, more than almost anything else. So that might be um, the biggest thing to look for with Brian Dable. Uh, Other than that, I think you really kind of have to see how they're going to do it uh, or what else comes along with it. That's kind of the interesting, going back to the, you know, trying to manage tempo. It's like you kind of almost lose something when you, uh, you know, I think that's why Jimbo almost becomes kind of, I'm not angry, but just kind of annoyed when people ask if he wants to go up tempo or do more like RPO stuff, uh, which kind of coincides. It's not necessarily exclusive with with you know, having to spread, you know, but but it is you know the RPO and the quarterback running and designed runs kind of kind of go with tempo, and he always gets kind of kind of annoyed with with those questions uh, because he wants to be able to you know, have everything kind of work together, and he thinks if you go too much with tempo, that might take away from the defense and. Fair to say, I mean, Alabama's had some really good defenses, but is that part of the reasoning maybe why you think, uh, based on last year's championship game, or is, is that why Alabama may want a little bit more of, of that balance to get back to that? I, I think that is probably a fair part of it. I don't know if that's 100% of the reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you know, there are situations that I think Alabama wants to avoid getting itself into, like what you saw towards the end of last year's national championship game. You know, um, one thing that – the way that I always explained last year's Alabama defense to people was that the 2016 defense, probably with players about one through 13 or 14, you know, um, a couple of extra linebackers, um, was, was probably the best defense that Nick Saban has had in Alabama, or at least as good as any, mm-hmm. um, 2015 defense the year before really went players about one through 20 without much drop off. And that was a, a big difference um, between the two, between the two defenses. I think, you know, if you put the 2015 defense in, in the same game against Clemson that you saw this past year, you might've seen a different outcome um, just because they had a couple more bodies that they could throw in there and feel really good about, um, you know, the, there's always going to be really talented players in Alabama um, just because of the level that they recruit at. Um, but like, like you can see at Florida state or anywhere else with really talented players, it's a matter of how many of those guys are, are ready to play and step in at any time. And you mentioned the defensive front, uh, kind of, uh, think brings us to the next thing I wanted to, to ask you and that's perceived weaknesses. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of Florida state fans are curious to see, they know, like you said, Ben, that the Alabama just churns out. There's always talent and there's always guys to kind of step up and it's, it's next man up type of type of deal with them, especially on that defense. Um, but when you look at, at what Alabama lost last year, Jonathan Allen, uh, Tim Williams, a uh, couple other guys up front and then at the second level too. Uh, what one, I guess, is there any concern of if there is a, a perceived weak link is it fair to say maybe that at least the inexperience up up front because they didn't get a whole lot of guys like two years ago tim williams was a guy who like at least was a situational pass rusher and got reps there and i'm blinking on the other defensive yeah. end um but I, they, ryan they, anderson was the other outside ryan line. anderson and he was you know uh, was a second or third round draft pick too uh but i don't know man like do they have a whole lot of experience really coming back up front now uh, well, Deron Payne, the, the nose tackle or the defensive tackle, however you want to characterize it in, in this system, um, is really experienced. He's a he's a junior, but he played a lot as a true freshman and was a starter all year last year. Um, he might end up going to the NFL after this year. Um, you know, he is, a, he is than, an Alabama defensive lineman. So, yeah, yeah. three and done. That's how they do things yeah. there. Um, Deshaun Hand um, will play in this game. I'm sure that Florida State fans were aware of his DUI arrest and hoping that he might be suspended for this game. It doesn't sound like that's going to happen. Um, he's a senior who's played a lot in the last two years, kind of waiting his time playing the same position as Jonathan Allen, who, you know, one of the best defensive players in the country. Um, the third defensive line spot looks like a battle between a junior college transfer named Isaiah Bugs um, and a sophomore named Raquan Davis, who's about six foot seven, three Oh five, just a massive defensive lineman. 
um, you know, real big hands, long arms can create some problems in the passing game if he gets his arms up. Um, but yeah, behind those guys, I don't know if I don't know if there's really anybody. I, I think Alabama probably feels pretty okay about those four guys, um, of which they'll end up starting three. You know, Bugs and Davis will probably battle for the last spot. Um, but other than that, I don't know if they feel like they have a, a backup defensive tackle or, or another end um, that they could throw in there and, and feel good about. It. At least right now, maybe they'll end up developing it. You know, they're, they've got some four star guys um, that they brought in, um, but none of those guys have been in a situation before where I think you'd feel great about playing them against Florida State in the opener. Hey, before I forget, I uh, I looked it up when. Maybe like 10 minutes ago, I keep forgetting. Uh, neither Florida State uh, under Jimbo Fisher, Alabama uh, under Saban have, have lost to uh, season opener. So there it is. Some, someone's going to have to lose. Um, yeah. All right. F- finally, Ben, and then I'll let you run here. Uh, we talked about strengths, talked about weaknesses. And if this is too, if you haven't thought far enough ahead yet, let me know. But, but, what area, I guess, as you're looking at the Florida State game, do you see Alabama as being able to have a, a pretty you know, firm grasp of a strength? And what area do you think could be exploited a little bit by Florida State? Uh, so I guess the strengths and the weaknesses going into the game uh, as it pertains to the matchup. Um, honestly, I, I know we just talked about the defensive line. I feel like Florida State might have a better chance of attacking Alabama through the air. They're, they're still kind of trying to sort out the secondary. They've got – one safety back, uh, a corner who's back, and their nickel is back. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, they have to figure out who they're going to start the other safety and the other corner. Now, like they have Minka Fitzpatrick, who could start at either safety or corner and probably provide you with you know an All America level of play. Um, but that still would then leave the one more spot. You know, if, if they're trying to develop a cornerback named Trevin Diggs, uh, I think they would like to see him win the starting quarterback job and they can leave Minka Fitzpatrick at safety. Um, but if they, if they feel like they need to play Minka at corner, then they might do that um, and play a senior, just a guy who's who's been around for a long time, even though he hasn't been a starter at the other safety spot. Uh, I, I really think that, you know, losing Travis Rudolph early, um, probably hurts Florida State in that regard. You know, just a go-to guy that DeAndre Francois uh, had pretty good rapport with. That that could have been a mismatch that could have created all kinds of problems for Alabama's secondary. Um, I'm disappointed we won't get to see that. Um, kind of just as a, as a little bit of a tangent, um, since you and I have a Uh-oh. long history of tangents together. I, I was wondering in the last couple of days if Minka Fitzpatrick and Derwin James might be the best two defensive backs in the country. Um, going into this game yeah. you know i'm sure that fans from either program would want to take their guy over the other one um but i don't i don't know of anyone else who's playing on their level I, i'm not necessarily super well versed in big 10 or, or pac 12 or big 12 football um but yeah, I, I think both of those guys are phenomenal players and gonna be first round draft picks they're both gonna be top 10 draft picks probably yeah yeah because you mentioned Minka and Florida State fans do know Minka Fitzpatrick. Like they, Florida State was in his recruitment to kind of the bitter yeah. end, and they thought that was going to be a guy they were going to be able to pull and had a chance at, and it didn't happen. It's kind of the one that got away. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's yeah. he's Gosh, that secondary with Tavares McFadden and Derwin James yeah. and Minka Fitzpatrick. Man, <laughs> that would that would have been something. Yeah, because they all have been the same class, right? They're all uh, they're the all third junior. Year. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting too. Is like. With with Minka, um, and when uh, we actually had Wayne uh, McGay on, I think it was last week, talking about DBs, and he said, you know, McFadden's arguably the number one cornerback. And I said, no, I think I don't think it's an argument. Like I think Minka Fitzpatrick is if he um, plays corner this year, he, if yeah. he does. But that's, I guess that's what I was going to like talk about with uh, both when you compare Minka Fitzpatrick and Derwin James. Like both are arguably. You know, best defensive back in the country, uh, but they play the game so differently, and they're still versatile. Yeah. Like, like they both play safety, but the Derwin almost becomes more of this like pseudo edge rusher. You just this guy you put in the box and let him wreak havoc, uh, and then in Minka you can put him at corner. Uh, yeah, they, they can put Minka at any of the five positions in in the secondary, and they feel really good about him. I think. Yeah, and that like if Alabama's looking to kind of because like Marlon Humphrey was so good, and they lost to Eddie Jackson. Um, so you lose yeah. some guys, and you're trying to figure that out. Like that's where having a guy like like a like a Minka Fitzpatrick I mean, is kind of a an eraser. He kind of makes up for at least one problem. You can put him either way, and like you said, feel really good uh, with Florida State's passing game. I, mean, I think them losing Travis 
Rudolph, his his career numbers were like top ten in Florida State history, but he was like not a big game guy. He never really rose to the occasion when they needed him to. And, and frankly, like a lot of his his damage was done in you know against either a, a group of five team or like a Wake Forest or Syracuse. I think like forty percent of his rece- career production in, in three seasons came again in, in like about three or four games. I don't have the number right in front of me, but it would have been really nice for Florida State to have a guy who. You know, DeAndre Francois had good rapport with, knew exactly what he has. Uh, but you know, we, we were talking about the wide receivers last week, and and there's at least two good ones they feel confident with: and Auden Tate and Nyquan Murray. And I'm really bullish on Keith Gavin now. I was kind of skeptical, and he was a guy that that almost chose Alabama over Florida State and stuck with Florida State as original uh, commitment. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of proven commodities in Florida State's uh, you know wide receiving core. And that's kind of when this game, when we start looking at matchups that maybe Florida State could exploit to to neutralize what what is basically, if you look at recruiting rankings over the years, like a like a small discrepancy in, in raw talent. Um, yeah, I don't know if Florida State's strength equal weaknesses for for Alabama. I think Florida State's offensive line is still a work in progress. I don't know if it if it can you know have a ton of success against a pretty inexperienced, albeit talented Alabama. And, I, and I'm not sure yet whether. I think Florida State's passing game could be pretty good, um, but I don't know, man. Like I, I have to see what Nyquan Murray, Nauvin Tate do. Uh, yeah, there, the there are also passing. situations though where a really good quarterback just makes a good passing game, even with pretty average receivers. You know, mm-hmm. that's not unprecedented. And then, then that's with like DeAndre Francois. Does he take the next step? Uh, because there are yeah. some certain accuracy issues. Like he was tough. He could move. He could push the ball downfield. But like he has to be more consistent. And I don't know yet. You know, like we were talking about Jalen Hurts, one year to another. I don't know how much better you get as a passer. I think for DeAndre, it's going to get better as seeing the whole the whole picture. Uh, something that James Winston did remarkably well. Um, and if he does, maybe that kind of fixes the accuracy because you're more decisive and make the, the throw on time more. Um, but, yeah, can Florida State keep DeAndre Francois upright this year and starting off with Alabama? Like, it'll be a pretty good test because Florida State ends up playing Miami and NC State, and they have really good defensive fronts. Uh, and then on the other side of that, then what, what do you think is an area that Alabama uh, theoretically sh- should have success against Florida State, like if you're projecting that? Yeah, um, I know that – I think Florida State feels really good about its defensive front, um, but I don't think that Alabama is is going to shy away from trying to establish the run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might end up seeing three. I, w- I would say there's a maybe even a good bet that you could end up seeing three different guys with twelve carries each in this game. If it's Damian Harris and Bo Scarborough and, and Jalen Hurts, um, and then you see a little bit of Najee Harris or, or Josh Jacobs in a different role. Um, I think I think Alabama is definitely going to try and establish the run in this game because that's who they want to be offensively. Um, and you know, ultimately, if, if Alabama can't establish the run in this game, um, then you know there's a good chance that Florida State's front seven is going to eat them alive in the passing game anyway. So you, you, you kind of you kind of have to at least try that. Um, and because that's going to be such a strength for Alabama, I'd, I'd be surprised if they didn't really go that heavily early on. That's what I think is interesting about this matchup as it's getting closer and the more I think about it, it's going to be, I think it's going to be strength versus strength. I think it's going to be Alabama's, you know, what, what it wants to do, like you said, Ben, it's going to be going against what Florida State's perceived strength is. And then conversely, like I think the areas that are a little bit more, uh, that are more unknown at the very least, and maybe it's too early to call it a weakness, but at least an area that you're not sure about is kind of going up against an area that the other team's not sure about. Uh, yeah, and so like that for me, we're not going to do a prediction because I'm nowhere near close to making one, and I don't know if, if I, you know, no one, no one knows. Um, but I, it's hard to kind of gauge because it's going to be basically who kind of, kind of, you know, force its will upon the other team because they're both going to want to try to. It's going to be strength going against strength, and and that's to me is what makes this this matchup so intriguing. Yeah, yeah. That and, you know, just the fact that it's not just a, a general strength of a college football team. It's, you know, maybe the Believe. best college football team and the second best college football team, however you want to rank them. You know, mm-hmm. this this is kind of as big as it gets for, for both programs, I think. Yeah, and, and to go micro, like it's probably the what will be the most dangerous run game in the country, at least the, the deepest and, and one of the most efficient versus – 
you know, one of the, you know, maybe the best defensive tackle combination in the country, or at least one of, like, it's going to be really interesting and that's going to kind of dictate terms for this game. Um, I, I think that's what's going to probably ultimately, and I know it sounds cliche, but like if Alabama can run the ball, that's going to open up a lot of stuff that, that they're going to want to do uh, with play action stuff, take pressure off of Hurts, make him more dangerous. If Florida State can shut that down for a while, I think that gives him a chance to, to get good field position and do some things against Alabama uh, on offense. So we'll see. Um, ben, I think that's everything for now. Like I said, no predictions. I'm saving you. I know you haven't made one yet on the radio, so so we'll hold off uh, on that. I know. Uh, and I told you it would only be 30 minutes. It's been almost an hour on the dot, so, so sorry about that. Uh, but, but Ben, thanks so much for joining. I appreciate it. With the uh, Knowles 24-7 podcast, I'm Brendan Sinone. Thanks for listening, guys.